1: Do Latter-day Saints generally honor their covenants? Absolutely. Welcome to this edition of Viewpoint on Mormonism. I'm your host, Bill McKeever, founder and director of Mormonism Research Ministry, and with me today is Eric Johnson, my colleague at MRM. The Apostle Paul warned us very specifically in Galatians chapter 1 that we are not to pervert the gospel Paul explains very clearly what that gospel of grace is all about, and he makes it very understandable that we are to come to Christ believing that he paid for our sins, and that not only did he pay for our sins, he paid for all of our sins, that there is nothing that we need to add in order to receive the blessings of salvation that Christ offers us because of his living the law perfectly and dying on the cross on our behalf. Mormonism, unfortunately, tends to pervert the gospel that Paul taught. And this is what we're looking at this week when we examine a couple of conference messages that were given in April of 2023. Today, we are going to continue looking at Dale G. Renlund's conference message titled, Accessing God's Power Through Covenants. And as we've explained up until this point, covenant keeping is essential for Latter-day Saints if they hope to receive that exaltation after they die. In yesterday's show, we started with a quotation from 17th President Russell M. Nelson, a quotation that Dale Renlund gave, where he said, Each person who makes covenants in baptismal fonts and in temples and keeps them has increased access to the power of Jesus Christ to lift us above the pull of this fallen world. Now, Eric, I would say that Latter-day Saints, and those of us who profess to be New Testament Christians, struggle with the pull of the world. We come to Christ asking for his strength, and we're not always good at applying that strength, and so we have difficulties living that sanctified life. In Mormonism, they call it this covenant path. It's almost the same type of concept, but in Mormonism, if you get off the covenant path, if you blow it, you don't receive the things you hope to receive. Whereas Christians, though we don't want to abuse the grace that we have from Christ, if we do find us doing things we shouldn't do, we don't have to fear that we've lost that justification. It just means that we need to repent, which is God's mechanism to remind us we need to do a course correction, and we get back on it. But we have not lost that justification that we had in the beginning. It doesn't work that way in Mormonism, and we're going to see from the next paragraph that's found on page 35, the third column from Dale Renlund's conference message.
2: Before the earth was created, God established covenants as the mechanism by which we, his children, could unite ourselves to him. Based on eternal, unchanging law, he specified the non-negotiable conditions whereby we are transformed, saved, and exalted. In this life, we make these covenants by participating in priesthood ordinances and promising to do what God asks us to do, and in return, God promises us certain blessings.
1: He goes on to say, a covenant is a pledge that we should prepare for, clearly understand, and absolutely honor. Now, when you hear the word absolutely honor in that context, Eric, does it sound like there's wiggle room? And the reason I asked that is because in yesterday's show, I asked the question, how wide is this proverbial covenant path? Is it as wide as a lane on a freeway? Or is it as wide as a balance beam that a gymnast would use in a competition? A balance beam is only a few inches wide. I think it's about four inches, whereas you have several feet in a lane on a freeway. What do you think their understanding of the covenant path would probably closely resemble? I would assume by what we're reading here that it's more like a balance beam. Once you lose your balance and you fall off, you need to get back on. And of course, you get back on through your repentance. But the reason you have to repent is because you violated the covenant that you made, for instance, when you were baptized or when you partook of the sacrament or when you went through the Mormon temple. You are actually acknowledging that you didn't keep the promise. But yet, keeping the promise is what's important. Remember, Russell Nelson says, you not only make covenants in baptismal fonts and in temples, but you must keep those covenants. Only then are you going to have this alleged increased access to the power of Jesus Christ. What you just read there, Eric, is very important, where it says, Based on eternal, unchanging law, he, speaking of God, specified the non-negotiable conditions whereby we are transformed, saved, and exalted. So when you promise to keep your covenants, which translates, you promise to keep the commandments. How many of them, Bill? Great question. Did you, as a Latter-day Saint, covenant to merely keep some of the commandments some of the time? Or did you covenant to keep all of the commandments all of the time? I'm asking the Latter-day Saint that might be listening to my voice right now. I'm assuming you probably covenanted to keep all the commandments all of the time. My question is, how are you doing at that? Because if you're honest— and you're a human, a fallen human, as I am a fallen human, you're probably not doing that consistently. And yet, we see from here, based on eternal, unchanging law, and by the way, if it's an eternal, unchanging law, can we assume that these eternal, unchanging laws predate the God of Mormonism? Because according to Joseph Smith, God was once a human being. He became God later on after performing all the things that Latter-day Saints are supposed to perform before he dies, and then he was ultimately elevated to the position of God, the office that he holds right now. If he was not always eternally God, that would mean that this eternal law predates him, that he is subject to this eternal law.
2: So that's a good reason why he can't change it, because it was before him as far as his having deity. So uh, I I mean, this is a a terrible situation for Latter-day Saints. I want to give you a quote from an apostle, Melvin J. Ballard. He gave this 100 years ago. This is at General Conference, and this is found in Conference Reports, April 1927, page 159. This is what he said, "...so it is with our Heavenly Father." All he can do is to warn us, point out the danger, show us the way of escape, and when we resist it, we bind God. We speak of binding the devil, and the devil will be bound and have no power over us when we resist him. But we may resist the Lord in the same manner, and thus bind his hands so that he can do nothing for us. For he himself is ruled by law. He cannot set aside the majesty of eternal law, nor
1: save men in their sins. Just the thought of a God who is bound by anything— Seems to be problematic. I know that our God has a certain nature and that he cannot, will not sin, for instance, but visualizing a God with, let's say, his wrist bound by a cord is just something I can't even imagine. It it even goes to the the whole concept of salvation, that somehow God is up there wringing his hands, hoping that someone can be convinced to put their trust in him. Just takes away from his glory. That is not the God that I think the New Testament describes.
2: But Bill, did you see what Ballard is saying? No matter how much he might want to help you out, I think a lot of Latter-day Saints think Jesus is on their side, he's rooting them on, and he's helping them possibly. According to Ballard, he can't help you if you're not doing your end of the bargain when you make the covenants at baptism, at the temple, at your sacrament. Listen to what Alma chapter 11, verse 37 says in the Book of Mormon. This is a very important scripture, obviously, in Mormonism. And I say unto you again that he cannot save them in their sins— For I cannot deny his word, and he has said that no unclean thing can inherit the kingdom of heaven. Therefore, how can ye be saved, except ye inherit the kingdom of heaven? Therefore, ye cannot be saved in your sins.
1: You cannot be saved in your sins. We've talked about this before on this show. How do we interpret that last line? Because we are all fallen human beings. We are, in a certain respect, sinful people. We are in sin. We do commit sin. But as Christians, we believe, because of our trust in what Christ did for us, that sin has been taken away from us, and right the righteousness of Christ has been imputed to us. So while we might still be sinners, we are still simultaneously justified. I think Martin Luther even used an expression just like that. But can a Latter-day Saint interpret it the same way? They haven't. Mormon leaders haven't. They've looked at this as if you're involved in sin or you're off the covenant path, well, then the conditions are such that you are not going to be saved or exalted.
2: You brought up the word imputation, Bill. Imputation is being credited for righteousness that you did not earn or deserve. No matter how willing Jesus is to want to impute righteousness into your account, as much as he'd like to do that, he can't do it. It is a doctrine in biblical Christianity. The Bible is very clear that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. His works are what give us the ability to have our sins forgiven, because He cleanses us, not based on what you do.
1: Renlow goes on to say, A covenant is a pledge that we should prepare for, clearly understand, and as I said earlier, absolutely honor. Making a covenant with God is different than casually making a promise, he said. First, priesthood authority is required. That runs into a whole nother controversy, because This priesthood authority that Latter-day Saints often talk about is not mentioned in the New Testament. Certainly it talks about priests who had the Aaronic priesthood, and it talks about Jesus who had a priesthood after the order of Melchizedek, but we do not read anywhere in the New Testament of, let's say, the 12 apostles having any type of Melchizedek authority. We don't see that at all. They have to insert this into this whole concept, which I would assume is a perversion of what Paul taught in the New Testament, and would be specifically a perversion that he was mentioning in Galatians 1.
2: And Ephesians 2, we quote it all the time, verses 8 and 9, we're saved by grace through faith. This is not of yourselves. This is the gift of God, not by works. That contradicts Mormonism.
1: He goes on to say, second, a feeble promise does not have the connecting strength to lift us above the pull of the natural flow. We make a covenant only when we intend to commit ourselves quite exceptionally to fulfilling it. We become covenant children of God and inheritors of his kingdom, especially when we identify ourselves completely with the covenant. It sounds to me like the covenant path is probably not much wider than the balance beam. It certainly isn't as wide as a lane on the freeway.
0: Thank you for listening. If you would like more information regarding Mormonism Research Ministry, we encourage you to visit our website at www.mrm.org where you can request our free newsletter, Mormonism Researched. We hope you will join us again as we look at another Viewpoint on Mormonism.